From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, MIGs for advanced glaucoma and premium IOLs in the context of tear film abnormalities. It's not so much the severity of the disease that matters, it's how well controlled it is. First this. If you're planning to attend this year's ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego, California, why not come in a day early for the 2015 ASCRS Glaucoma Day on Friday, April 17th? This full-day program features critical updates, robust debates, and interactive case studies on what comprehensive ophthalmologists and anterior segment surgeons need to know about glaucoma management. Speakers include leaders in the field like ASCRS President Richard Lewis, Stephen Sarkissian, Thomas Samuelson, and Edward Holland. Plus, this educational activity has been approved for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. You'll save more than 10% on on-site rates if you register by Friday, April 3rd. Go to ASCRSglaucomaday.org for more information. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during ASCRS's side-by-side meeting in Aventura, Florida. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Tom Samuelson on MIGS for Advanced Glaucoma, and Elizabeth Yu on premium IOLs in the context of tear layer abnormalities. I'm here with Tom Samuelson. Hey, Tom, I, 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 have, a, I have a question. You know, MIGS is a, a, a procedure, a collection of procedures that are, are really relatively low, low risk. They're, they're very safe. Okay, maybe they're not as, as profoundly influencing pressure as a, as a a, a trab is, and I can understand where they, they would fit in um, in terms of managing patients on one or two drops who are relatively well controlled. But the thing is, is what if you have a patient with glaucoma that's a little bit more severe? You know, does that mean that we can't use MIGs? They, they, they are awfully safe. Say, say, Josh, that's just a, a great question. At, at the conference uh, this year, I'm talking about managing severe glaucoma in the MIGS era. And you're exactly right. We've typically used MIGS for mild to moderate glaucoma, but name a step in the management of glaucoma that we can't utilize uh, for a given patient. You know, we wouldn't say this patient's too advanced, so I'm not going to use alpha agonists, or this patient's too advanced, so I'm not going to use prostaglandins. Each of these things, and MIGS is included, is a step in the management of glaucoma. So Theoretically, we should be able to use it in, in any patient. It's, it's not so much the severity of the disease that matters, it's how well controlled it is. For example, if you have a patient on three medicines and their pressure is 12, and they're gonna have cataract surgery, why wouldn't you utilize a MIGS procedure to, to benefit from its safety and hopefully get them from three medicines to maybe one medicine, from maybe from three medicines to no medicines. So it's not so much that you're going to utilize a MIGS in such a patient, it's the manner in which you do it. It's how you monitor them, it's how 
frequently check the pressure, it's managing pressure spikes, it's, it's all in methodology, not so much which specific tool we're going to utilize. So I think that you can use MIGS in more advanced glaucoma, you just have to be careful about doing it. Well, let, let me a a ask a question just to sort of take it off the table. Is, is the use of MIGS a, a contraindication later on to doing a trap or doing a tube? No, that's one of the great things about MIGS is that it doesn't prevent you from doing a more uh, definitive procedure later if needed. So it's all about timing. You have to monitor the patient carefully. You can't be in denial if it's not working. I mean, if you're six, eight weeks, two months out and the pressure's clearly too high, you have to take other steps. So it's not business as usual. It's important that, that cataract surgeons or non-glaucoma specialists that are adopting these techniques understand you have to treat these patients differently. Just assume it's going to be a steroid responder. Just assume you're going to have to monitor pressure in the first two to three weeks, um, maybe due to a steroid response or retained viscoelastic. It's, it's just very important to treat them with the, um, with the caution that's deserved in, in moderate to more advanced glaucoma. So, um, if you're not willing to do that, I think you have to be careful and, and not use MIGS in such patients. But I think it can be done, and, and one of the ways you can do it is to utilize the best of MIGS, uh, cataract surgery plus one of these minimally invasive techniques, but don't abandon pharmacologic therapy. I, I like to use the acronym MIST for the drug side of things, minimally intrusive sustainable therapy. Four bottles is not sustainable. It's not minimally intrusive. One or two bottles is pretty reasonable. So if you can combine MIGS with one or two medications, uh, it's really a winning combination. And I see your point, and it's very, very clever, that it's less about the severity of the disease process than it is about the stability of the the therapy. If a patient has disease that's advanced but is managed well and is relatively stable, maybe he is a MIGS candidate. Absolutely. Glaucoma is a complex, heterogeneous condition. You can have a patient with mild field loss. Maybe they've got a very early nasal step, but, but maybe the pressure is 50. Right. Maybe that patient isn't a MIGS candidate. Right. But you can have a patient with severe field loss, and their pressure's been 12 for the last five years, but maybe they're on four medicines. And you can take FACO combined with, with MIGS in that patient, and do them a great service by getting them off maybe two, maybe three of their medicines. This is great stuff, D Tom. I'm really glad that, that 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 you you know that you spoke on this topic. I'm even more glad that that you're so generous with your time with us today. My pleasure. I'm here with Liz Yu. Liz, your practice has a lot of uh, premium lens patients. You also have a lot of cornea, ocular surface disease patients mm -hmm. uh, in the sort of Venn diagram. I, I imagine that there's a large overlap between the uh, two. So, so let me kind of set things up. Sure. Someone comes into you, a, a nice premium lens candidate, mm -hmm. and on slit lamp exam, they have some mild ocular surface problems, you know, some ibomian gland uh, dis dysfunction, some early to from breakup, nothing that you would normally get exercised about. They're there as a pre-op for, uh, for, for premium lens. How much of a red flag does the ocular surface disease throw up for you? And what is your algorithm for sort of managing this, this patient sort of preoperatively, perioperatively 
what do you do? Sure. Um, it sounds like we're discussing, you know, the idea of refractive cataract surgery. And refractive cataract surgery really is a commitment because in order to get the results, the refractive results, the wow, the happy patient postoperatively and reaching that emetropia as a result, you really need, you need ideal pharmacology. You also need to have really good preoperative planning measurements and the ideal patient. Patients aren't ideal. Their ocular surface isn't ideal, as we know. Um, if we pick that up, First and foremost, we have to sit with the patient and really delineate with them where their vision is, okay? There's a baseline disability due to the increasing cataract in size, but then there's a secondary fluctuations, and we have to tease that out because that's more ocular surface disease. The patient needs to understand that. Other clues beyond the clinical examination are going to be the diagnostics. I do perform um, tear diagnostics, including a tear osmolarity and an inflammatory on my patients preoperatively, um, the inflammatory more so on the follow-ups and whatnot. And secondarily, looking at topography to see how much the ocular surface disease is affecting the placido disc image because astigmatism management is going to be key. And that is astigmatism management alone, but um, simultaneously, especially if you are doing um, multifocal lens implants, as we know, with multifocal lens implants, there's very, very low threshold for tolerability on any quarter diopter of astigmatism um, that's going to drop um, their lines of vision precipitously, whereas in a monofocal lens, they wouldn't. So those are kind of key components to set the stage for how to treat the patient, the severity level, um, the urgency, and um, their uh, their goals and outcomes. So you did, there was, what you just said was, was, was great. It was very, very dense. I, I'm, I'm going to, to un- unpack some of it <laughs> uh, for people who are thinking at my speed. Um, so uh, one, one of the things that, that, that you said is, um, that I that I really liked is is that although the overlying visual degradation may be due to the cataract, mm-hmm. if the patient is complaining about fluctuations in vision over the course of, of the of the day, mm-hmm. then you have to take that that seriously as an indicator that they're getting some refractive problems as a result of an abnormality of their 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 tear film. Exactly. And it's not only for me, but it's also for the patient too, because sometimes the unhappy patient is because of their functional visual outcomes. They may be, and we've all seen that, they have great best corrected or uncorrected visual acuity, but they still have the fluctuations. And that could be intermittent. It could be, you know, from day to night, but that is something that the patients will be unhappy with. And they'll still think all of that is due to us, the surgeon. We operated on them. Why is it not fixed? So, so for our benefit as, as well as the patient's benefit. And ultimately, if we don't have stable um, calculations, it's going to also lead to a non-emetropic result, which is an issue, and that's really primarily from not managing the ocular surface preoperatively. Yeah, and so that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the other point, the second point that, that, I, that I wanted to uh, say in a little, a little bit of a slower way than the way that you did, um, which is, is that we're... The we think of of ourselves and our our measurements in the, in this this sort of platonic form where we are we are getting perfect data and we're planning things based on that data and that the result that we're going to get is going 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 to going to follow that. But the underlying premise that we're getting perfect data mm-hmm. is degraded if the patient has a tear film that's poor because ultimately with the placido disc with with everything that we're doing what we're actually doing is we're measuring tear film and if the patient has got a fluctuating tear film then we're going to get very noisy data and that's going to make for 
a result that's going to be less predictable too. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And with our uh, more common uh, topographies, particularly Placido disc-based topographies, it is exquisitely sensitive to how the tear film actually um, covers the corneal surface in order to get the proper images. Um, and then looking at the axial maps, if you see hot spots or flat spots, islands of irregularity, we have to keep in our mind that that might be due to an area of irregularity due to either dry eye or some mechanical problem like anterior basement membrane dystrophy or Saltzman's or pterygium that could affect our measurements. So what, what, I'm, what I'm taking home from, from, what you're, from, from your talk, from what you're saying now, is, is that I am going to treat aggressively the ocular surface problems preoperatively, perioperatively for visual reasons. And what I'm going to uh, get as, as, a, as a benefit, incidentally, is also a more comfortable patient with fewer dry eye symptoms. So th this is really, really great, great stuff. Super duper practical. I want to thank you very much, first of all, for speaking about this, this, this interesting topic here. And second of all, for being so generous with your time with us oh, today. Thank you. Thomas Samuelson comes to us from the Minnesota Eye Consultants in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Elizabeth Yu is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. Ask questions of Dr. Samuelson, Dr. Yu, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.